So we have a vision here in our church family that the gospel is transformational. It changes you. It doesn't necessarily perfect you instantly, but the gospel is at work changing you, and it doesn't just transform our hearts. It also transforms our home. And uh, most of us, I think, if you grow up in America, your vision of your family is that you hope your family is successful and happy. You hope you're Um, If you're a Christian family, you might hope that you raise decent Christians who go out and contribute to the world and who um, are kind in the world. But um, I would like to um, also acknowledge that some people, uh, they're not at that stage of envisioning a family that is thriving or successful. Their vision is just really simply survival. I hope that my relationships with my parents, my kids. I hope the sibling relationships, uh, I hope that uh, in the long run they survive it, and that's understandable. Um, Here in a a Christian family, in a church family that is um, free, we believe that the gospel is big enough and transformational enough that we get to build the home that God has freed us to have. And that is not just in how we're raising kids, it's also how we're loving our spouse and also how we're relating to each other as siblings and parents, uh, uh, children to parents. Um, But a lot of us, that would be a lot to ask. It would be a lot to imagine transformation. Um, In fact, I would imagine that for many of us, even if you are joined to Jesus and your heart has changed, you still eventually end up at a holiday table with your family, and at that family is a bunch of people who are generally estranged from each other, not necessarily uh, connected in affectionate relationship with each other. Perhaps this is like a Thanksgiving scene, and you know that somewhere around the table there is a handful of grudges that are held against each other, Uh, and you might be thinking, I'm just glad everybody's here at the table, but I wonder, even if this family dinner is, uh, goes off without a blow-up, even if it is just small talk with, some, uh, with a little dash of silence, if at the end of that family gathering, Everybody kind of heads home, and there was no blow-up. I wonder if we could describe that. I know we do. That's a success. In, large, in, in, in a lot of families, that's a winner. Or if we didn't deepen the divide or further estrange one another. I also wonder, and I thought this at the time when one of my kids um, was having a tough time when they were little, having a tough time doing what we had asked them to do. And we had asked this particular child, who will this time will remain nameless <laughs> and genderless, Lord willing. There's um, a room that has to be cleaned, and this one will not do it. And after back and forth and back and forth, I finally... I've had it, and I lay down the law, and I say, I want you to stop it with the fussing, and I want you to get yourself down to your room, and I want you to finish up cleaning that mess in your room. And this child 
throws their hands down, stomps their foot, spins around, and says, fine. And with an angry voice says, I hate this. And they went down to their room, and they did the slam clean. You know what the slam clean is? Clean the room just as I had asked with all the slamming and banging to express that they're angry. And I grew up in a home, by the way, where um, if that happened and at the end the room got clean, it's over. I grew up in a home where that's over. It's, it's the end because the child complied. Uh, in, in my surroundings, if the child complies and gets the room cleaned up, even if the slamming hap- happens, the parents are generally happy. Mission accomplished, and the discipline was over. Um, but does anyone else hear that story and you kind of go like, uh, I'm not sure it's over? In fact, it's over for most parents who are exhausted already, especially if you are a single parent and you're just trying to keep it together, that could very well be one of the biggest successes of the week. Um, It takes time and it takes effort. If you have a Thanksgiving table with estranged people, it takes all kinds of time and effort to work towards reconciliation. It takes time and effort to finish the job, or I should say, after that room cleaning incident, it takes time to actually begin disciplining in that situation, in the home. Um, But the question I'm wondering, and I want to pose to you is this, we're going to look at this question, why is our family gathered together after all that, um, why is there so much misbehaving that brings estrangement to the family, to the siblings? to the parents and kids. Why won't my little one, when I clearly have uh, authority, both size and force, I have authority, why won't that little one just give in and comply naturally and normally and do what they're asked to do? It's such a small thing, cleaning the room, especially um, a little one's room. Well, of course, people say that there's reasons why people behave poorly, especially when you think of little ones. They might say that people, these kids, uh, um, and, and accurately so, they will say uh, the child behaves, is behaving this way because they're tired, too much sugar in the diet, um, they're um, a New England Patriots fan. I mean, all kinds of evil. Um, or they might say they're hungry. Sometimes they get a little hyper. Too many video games. Or, I've, or, or this one too. It's just the way they are. This one is rebellious. Um, others would say there's, perhaps they're battling a developmental, uh, maybe a condition. And these certainly may be, as we know, contributing factors, right? They may be contributing factors for sure. But... They don't really get to the heart of the matter. They don't really get to the heart of the matter. What does God tell us about bad behavior? The bad behavior of our kids, the bad behavior of our siblings, the bad behavior of our parents, the bad behavior of our neighbors. What does God tell us about bad behavior? 
Well, we see some of it in Psalm 51. And the psalmist who writes it, David, he says, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. That's going way back. That's going a long way back. David saying, I was, I was a sinner from the time I was an idea. Even Jesus answers this classic family question. And I don't know if this has ever sprung up in your family, but in some families, maybe not yours, but in some families, you might hear a phrase like this, what is wrong with you? What in the world is wrong with you? Maybe you've heard um, in someone else's family, what has gotten into you? I can't imagine what's gotten into you. Or even a question for misbehaving family members, right? Some of us have even wondered this about our estranged siblings or our misbehaving, not always estranged, but sometimes misbehaving siblings, even adult siblings, obviously. How could they do this? How could they do this to me? How could they do this to us? How could they do this to our parents? How could they do this to their own kids? Do you know that Jesus himself answers the question? And we get to, if you're parenting or if you're a sibling or if you're a child and you're an adult child wondering this about your family, you don't have to ask this question anymore because you already have the answer. Jesus provides it to us. And so you can stop wondering what's gotten into your child. And I can stop wondering what's gotten into my child that did the angry stomp in compliance. I can stop wondering. Because Jesus tells us exactly the answer to the question, what's wrong with you? How could you do this? What has gotten into you? Look what Jesus says. This is in the Gospel of Mark. And he's describing the human condition. And he says, from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from where? Help me out. Within. They come from within. So, our family's evil behavior, deceptive behavior, Lust-filled behavior, all the behaviors that drive them into serious consequences and sometimes life chaos, all of that behavior is driven by their hearts. So children and family misbehave because they have selfish, sinful hearts. So it kind of makes me think, and this I had this epiphany too as I was parenting, and you know, if you're parenting a little one and you get down here on their size, you can answer your own question. What is wrong with you? You can answer your own question. What has gotten into you? Oh, you have a human heart. How could you do this? Oh, you have a selfish, sinful heart, the same one that I'm battling with every day, the same one that actually provoked me to get outrageously angry at you over this. Here's the thing. When you're adults, your evil heart can be kind of like, um, what's the word? Hmm. Let me put it another way. When you're a little one, there's no filter for that heart. That evilness comes out the mouth. That evilness comes out the hands. That evilness comes out the behavior and the tantrums and so on. But as adults, we kind of refine that part of us, and we've got it hidden behind a veil, and it takes quite a bit for us to get so ugly, right? 
but we have the same human heart. Also, sometimes people's bad behavior, listen to this, sometimes it doesn't only come from an evil, selfish heart, it also sometimes comes from a broken heart. Someone who's been shattered, their, their fun, fundamental, foundational building block of their well-being in their heart is broken because of some kind of abuse, rejection, abandonment, or some kind of brokenheartedness. So, is there any way to fix this? Is there any hope for any help? Is there any reason that we should expect that we're just stuck with our evil hearts? Well, no, obviously, the gospel transforms our home. How does the gospel transform our home? By refocusing our attention from controlling the behavior of our family to concentrating on the heart. So I hope you see that big idea today that the gospel brings change for us and we can actually uh, refocus where we're paying attention. We can refocus our efforts. We can refocus our, uh, our, our um, uh, uh, tactics from controlling behavior and modifying behavior, and correcting behavior, and we can refocus it on concentrating on the heart. So, how do we typically address wrong behavior? How does that happen? Because if um, we're going to correct and address wrong behavior, um, I just mentioned here that we have to transfer our attention from controlling behavior with rules, rules and regulations. Now, why is this hard? This is hard because, one reason is because the Apostle Paul says that living by a set of rules can appear impressive. And if, um, if you're a rule follower, it's quite likely that everybody who um, sees you considers you someone who performs very well. And um, perhaps the biggest obstacle to getting under the surface is our own selfish heart. A lot of times we don't want to get under the surface because we're afraid of what we're going to see. I know that this, this scenario that I described with parenting a, a, um, a, um, a rebellious or a um, disobedient child takes so much more time. And by the way, if I have to take more time disciplining my child, that takes more time away from me worshiping my idol, which is comfort. And I can't worship my comfort idol if I've got to spend the whole night half an hour, an hour, two hours, however long it takes, or maybe in an ongoing way, if I'm diving under the surface and I'm transferring my attention from controlling the behavior with rules, it's going to take a lot of time. And sometimes wrong motives lead to wrong ways of disagreeing and disciplining. But if your aim is always to protect your idols, right, comfort and control and approval and power, if our aim is always to be undisturbed, if our aim is always to protect my reputation, then I'll do and say anything it takes to control my family's behavior, even if it's just demanding that their behavior change on the surface. Because I want it over quick, and I don't want to disrupt my own heart idols. An example of that would be I am willing to manipulate. I'm willing to manipulate and say to the child, your Older sister had this figured out, and I don't understand why you can't do it a little more like her. Or it could sound like fear. You're going to do this, or you, you won't know, you won't even know what hit you. And then intimidate and fear and force. 
Or maybe it's bribery. Come on. Come on. Seriously. Get up. If you get up, we'll stop for a donut, and Dad will get a little apple fritter. But you'll get, the, you'll get a donut too. By the way, uh, I mentioned bribery last uh, Sunday. And by bribery, I don't mean rewarding children for achievement. I don't mean that. I mean, um, if you submit to our authority, then I'm going to give you something. That's what I mean. Does that make sense? I don't mean that, you know, someone aces the report card and you're like, hey, Pastor Dan mentioned one time, no bribery, so no reward for you. That's achievement. Achievement gets a reward, so on. Uh, But what I do mean is um, trying to negotiate uh, a child who you have authority over and negotiate their willing submission with um, donuts or whatever. It could also sound like guilt. It might sound like this. I want you to do this, and I want you to consider all I've done for you. After all I've done for you, this is how I want your behavior to change. This comes out of a sick heart that uh, we have, our own selfish hearts that have our own idols, or just the inconsistency of sometimes I don't really want to deal with it, so I give in and I say, okay, just this once, just this one time, but never again after this. And then I think to myself, I think I've said this before (laughs) many, many times. Again, why am I... Why am I parenting? Why am I reconciling? Why am I relating to my siblings this way? Because my own heart uh, has its own idols that I am working with. So check this out. Rules seem wise, but they aren't enough. They aren't enough because they provide no help in overcoming what's in the heart. Now I want to make sure that I point this out very clearly. Rules seem wise and they're necessary. Do we agree with that? Rules are necessary. Regulations in our homes are, negu- uh, uh, are uh, necessary. Um, what's another thing that I could say about that? Um, boundaries, critical and vital. It's important to express those, communicate those, clarify what those boundaries, rules, and regulations are. In no way am I saying that people who have gospel-transformed homes have no rules, no regulations, and no boundaries. Instead, what I'm hoping you see is this. We learn in a, in a Christian worldview that it's not enough. Why? Because they're powerless to bring heart change. There is a limit to uh, what these rules can do. They are essential to healthy parenting and family relationships, but they're not enough. Here's how the Apostle Paul in talking about these rules that are kind of like cultural rules, family norms, and so on. Here's what he says to the church at Colossae. He says, these rules that I just mentioned, they may seem wise because they require strong devotion. And someone who follows them would be piously in self-denial. And also, they require severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Um, one of the things that was um, very obvious in my family, there's several, lots of people in my family, probably like yours, who were rule followers. Where are my rule followers in here? Where are you? It's okay to admit that. Rule followers, you just like, tell me what the rule is, I'm doing it. Why do I see some of the spouses looking at the, their spouse and squinting going, since when? Pulling their hand down, like, what the? What are you lying in church? 
Well, there, I had rule followers in my family, married to a rule follower. My father-in-law was a rule follower. And my father-in-law actually wasn't just a rule follower, he was a rule giver. So we'd get these big Italian family uh, parties together, and he and, and uh, my mother-in-law would host them at their house, tons of people. And if you were careful, you could kind of just walk around the general room and you could see all the posted handwritten rules and regulations that my father-in-law had put in place. And the reason they're put in place is because people were acting funny, right? People were doing things they shouldn't be doing. Like there was in the basement kitchen with several ovens and refrigerators and indoor-outdoor carpet, from, the, from one part of the room to get into the kitchen was a very narrow walkway with some garbage here, and oftentimes people would end up there and just chit-chat. Well, that's, that's blocking the flow. So nobody noticed this but me. I'm sure of this. There was a sign there that was forbidding standing in that space, <laughs> written by hand. And it was fairly detailed. And all of these signs would address some... Um, undesirable behavior at family parties. Sometimes it was about the kids and the volume. Sometimes it was about where you stand. Um, this particular sign said, in essence, when you stand in this passageway, you're blocking trash receptacles. And also, people can't get in and out of the kitchen. And so, so please move. And it occurred to me that, um, I mean, do, do rule signs like that work? Do you think they, I mean, here's what I think of. When I think of rule signs like that, I think of this. <laughs> Look at this. Okay, anyway. I'm using the grass anyway. That's what I think of. What does following a set of rules appear to produce in someone's life? I think sometimes there are people who are going to follow the rules and there's a level of resentment. I don't understand why. I don't understand why I have to. I don't understand why other people aren't doing, following the rules, but I'm the one stuck following the rules. Also, it could generate someone following the rules an outward kind of, um, I don't know, performance appearance. I hope everyone's seeing that I'm complying. Doesn't mean that's always the heart of somebody who's following the rules, but um, Paul writes to Timothy, this is, this is absolutely amazing. This is, in my opinion, this is such a shocking passage of Scripture. Paul is writing to young Timothy, who's a church leader, and listen to how he describes the people among the city that Timothy is pastoring. Listen to how he describes the people. Here's what he says. Timothy, you should know this, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. What will the people be like? Well, they will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud. These people will be disobedient to their parents. They will scoff at God. They'll be ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiving, and they will slander others, and they will have no self-control. They're cruel and hateful. Also, they hate what is good. They betray their friends. They're reckless, puffed up with pride, and they love pleasure rather than God. How will these people... Um, how can you find these people? Will they be the rebellious ones? Probably. Will they be the people in open defiance, overtly rebellious and defiant? Probably. I imagine they're a little bit aggressive. Perhaps they're a little bit angry. But will they all act that way? Here's the rest of that verse. Look what Paul says to Timothy. They will act religious. 
but they will reject the power that could make them godly. These aren't godly people. These are people that are acting religious. They're following some of the pious laws that they inherited from their culture or from their religion. So they at times may even look like religious people. But what is he saying? Under the surface, we've got ourselves a situation with these people. Powerlessness um, to address the desires and the indulgence in the heart. So, um, we're not ignoring behavior in a transformed home. We're not ignoring behavior. Uh, instead, we're just not focusing on it. So when somebody's behavior is bad, child, sibling, parent, whatever, when someone in your family's behavior is bad, think of it like a check engine light. Um, the Scriptures help us to discover that bad behavior is like a check engine light. Um, so let's, let's do another crowd participation. Where are my people who see the check engine light and you immediately make the call, I got to get this into service and get this taken care of? Would you raise your hand? You're, you, you take care of it right away. Okay, you put your hand down. Now, where are my people who see that check engine light and say, if I wait this out, if I just give this some time, this thing is going to fix itself, maybe, for once. Where are you? Now, if, if you're sitting next to somebody and you live with them and they also raise their hand, <laughs> we definitely have a problem. I mentioned my father-in-law. Um, he was a uh, handyman. Uh, extreme, I mean, he's, he's well known for his ability to kind of repair anything and everything with duct tape, gizmos, and gadgets. And um, one of my favorite fixes that he had was when I got in his truck, it had a series of uh, maladies, and while I was riding with him in his truck, I looked over at his dashboard, and he had a piece of black electrical tape. Anyone know what he was using that for? Cover the check engine light. And now that I'm thinking it, that is brilliant. You know why? Because when my wife gets in the car, she has no faith like I do that that's going to take care of itself. So, oftentimes in our families and oftentimes in our homes, um, we kind of literally ignore or cover or pretend that there's nothing more happening. But as you know, that check engine light means there's, a, there's some work to do. And so if you're in a home with people who, that are misbehaving, if you have kids who are misbehaving, siblings who are misbehaving, let that misbehavior serve as a check engine light to provoke you to start looking under the surface and transfer your focus, not make new rules and demand new behaviors, but to begin the process of refocusing um, getting it diagnosed and repaired. Let rule-breaking serve as a trigger. It's time for heart inspection. So, what do we do? Well, I mentioned here earlier, transfer your attention from controlling behavior with rules to concentrating on the heart. In the Bible, you'll read so many different interventions that we can make into a child's life, right? We can encourage we can rebuke, correct, instruct, we can warn, we can pray, and we can teach. 
And by the way, if, uh, if you are raising a family and you have little ones at home in the notes today in our app, in our message notes for the weekly message, uh, you'll notice at the very bottom I have a whole list that um, um, an author of a book called Gospel-Centered Family wrote, and it's a list that will help parents go through the process of diagnosing the heart, getting be under the surface and, and refocusing and concentrating on the heart. So check that out if you uh, like those notes. It'll help you get under the surface. But based on this idea of concentrating on the heart, check this out. Here's what we know. Since the source of all human actions is under the surface, focusing on changing hearts matters more than controlling behavior. You're going to actually get under the hood. You're going to actually get to what is driving the danger that's happening. And I imagine it this way. I imagine um, a snorkeling group I imagine a snorkeling group that is off the edge of the boat. And uh, any of you done that? Gotten into the water, snorkeled fish live down there with dangerous creatures? Anybody? No? Me either. No, um, minimize the risk. That's what I'm saying. Cover the check engine light. Don't go snorkeling. It's hand in hand. But I imagine a tour. And the tour is off the edge of the boat in, in this clear water. I imagine that there's swimmers there. And then I imagine this, while I'm snorkeling or while the group is swimming. This is what I imagine. And for the sake of kind of illustrating here, I just want you to imagine the screaming and the panic and the um, wild swimming motion to try to scramble to the edge of the boat. And I want you to imagine with me getting everybody up into the boat, out of harm's way. Everybody is scrambled to safety. And then I want you to imagine that there's a tour guide who's leading this dive. And after a few minutes, the tour guide kind of makes an announcement to everybody on the boat and says, this is really, really good news. In short time, we were able to kind of control the shark and clip off its fin. So we're going to resume the tour now. Everybody can get back in the water. I mean... No thanks. Danger's not over. Obviously, the danger's not over. But I would like to suggest to you that for a lot of us, this is how we parent and this is how we function in our family. And that is that if we can correct the behavior, if we can kind of trim off the fin, either ignore it or otherwise fix the behavior, then we're content satisfied. And I'm hoping to inspire you today that that is just the beginning of doing what the gospel frees us to do, which is to see renewal and transformation in the relationships that make up our home. And that that renewal comes as we transfer our focus away from just correcting and controlling behavior, which is so important, but it's not enough. And getting ourselves under the surface so that we can address the real danger. And this illustrates such an essential question when we're dealing with people in our home. This illustrates such an essential question when we're dealing with people who are in our family. And it's critical that we know the answer to this question, what's happening under the surface in our hearts. When you finally get under the surface, when you trim that fin off of the shark and you say, that's not enough, I'm going to go down in the water, now I'm going to, I'm going to actually deal with the dangerous shark that's in our family or in these relationships. 
Why is there so much danger under the surface when we're dealing with people? This is why. Paul describes it to the church at Ephesus. He says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. And what is it about that life that we should know? It's corrupted by lust and deception. Where does all that stuff come from? Paul's already told us it comes from our hearts. So when we get down there, we're going to discover lust and deception. That our hearts are corrupted by deceitful desires. Our hearts are always desiring. Our hearts are always uh, um, longing. Our hearts are always treasuring, wanting to worship. And sin, sinful behavior arises when we trust and treasure anyone or anything else above and beyond Jesus. And it leads us to some bad behavior. So, um, you might think of it this way. When our child slams the door... When we say, no, we are not going to get you. You are seven years old. We are not buying you a $150 pair of shoes. When that door gets slammed, is it because that seven-year-old absolutely loves shoes? Or is it possible that their heart is longing to be approved by their peers and they know that this is a big step for approval and they can't get it and you're in the way. You're greedy... Um, uh, unwillingness to spend the money is in the way. And you can imagine, too, that that might be what prompts that child to shoplift the shoes because that's going to get me where I want, where my heart is leading me, and eventually the approval of my friends. And obviously, there's over-desire, and some of us are over-desire over for comfort over-desire for comfort that would make maybe our mom and our dad take on debt to afford a vacation home that they never could afford. But they take on that debt, why? Perhaps because they have an over-desire for comfort. So, our home isn't really attacked, oftentimes we say this, our home isn't necessarily attacked by devils and demons. But instead, the enemy knows how to entice our hearts with the lust and deceit that's already brewing with the old heart. The old nature, I should say. They're enticed by the appeals that are made to our corrupted desires that Paul describes there. So, you have to remember, I hope, I hope you remember that concentrating on the heart is using surface behavior to trigger an inspection under the surface. And that helps us ask questions when there's conflict in our family. Why are they behaving this way? We already know the answer, because there is lust and deception in the heart. Why are they acting that way? That's the answer. What's the solution? Confession, repentance, right? Um, forgiveness, restoration. And all of that takes time, and all of that takes methodical shepherding of a child's heart or working um, graciously with our family member to see that through. The good behavior oftentimes um, isn't what we're looking for. Uh, the bad behavior is definitely not what we're looking for. We oftentimes come up with this. What do we do now? In our situation, in my home, what am I going to do? Well, here we go. Put on our new nature and be renewed. This is from Colossians. And be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. There's this phrase that you kind of pick up in the scriptures if you're careful in one passage of scripture. I won't mention it now for the sake of time. But basically this idea is that you can grow to become like 
our Creator, who, is ex- who in the exact like- likeness, like- likeliness is Jesus, likeness is Jesus, and that by focusing or beholding Jesus, you become like Jesus. Beholding is becoming. There's this idea that you can be renewed as you learn to know, and how you know is you see and behold who God is expressed in the beauty of Jesus. And that as you behold, you become like Him. So how does that happen? Well, beholding um, can happen with four, let me give you these, four heart-changing truths. Do you have time for four? Good. Good. Check this one out. Here's four heart-changing truths that get to the heart. And oftentimes, if we are misbehaving, it's because our heart doesn't believe one of these four truths or all of these four truths. So let me run this by you. First one is this. This heart-changing truth about God is this, that God is great. God is great. And there's literally, I would say, an infinite amount of evidence that God is great. Therefore, if that's true, if we believe that, we don't have to be in control. Why don't we have to be in control, everybody? Because God's great. And if God's great, and I believe it, guess what I can do? I can relinquish control. The reason why I can relinquish control? Because of the greatness of God. Because I am so confident. I don't need to manipulate people or control circumstances because God is great and I'm not. God is sovereign. What does that mean? He's in control of all things. He has the authority over all things. That's what it means. He speaks creation into existence with His words, and everything is held together by the sound of His voice. Nothing happens that He doesn't know about, and He is the one who keeps the whole earth spinning on its axis. But God, let me help you out a little bit and control these circumstances. Let me give you a hand here fixing the heart of this little one or the behavior that is bothering me. God knows every star God knows every planet. God has a, certainly has it within his infinite knowledge to know every galaxy, every grain of sand. He even says every hair on your head. What does that mean? That means I can stop working so hard to manipulate people or control circumstances. He knows better than me. He is better than me. I have good intentions, but if I believe that God is great... I don't have to be in control. And that lets my heart change. That lets my behavior change. And that provokes um, behavior changes. But our knowledge of God's greatness seems to vanish, right, when things don't go our way. When things don't go our way, all of a sudden, the things that we know about God's greatness, not so much. So we take it back because maybe in our hearts we're not quite sure God's getting this right, so we take it back. We're in charge again, and really we need to stop, confess that, repent of that. Turn from that and believe that God through His Son has clearly demonstrated His greatness to us. Through His creation, as Tears have pointed out, has, has deeply and, and profoundly revealed his greatness to us, and then we worship Him as the sovereign one. Secondly, God is glorious. What does that mean? Well, if God is glorious, then we don't have to fear other people because other people aren't glorious. It's God who is supremely valuable, supremely important. It is God and God alone. He Himself is so glorious that um, 
even though we are craving the approval of other people, even though we fear rejection, even though we fear their disapproval, we need the acceptance of other people. So what happens? We end up being controlled by what they, by what they want of us or what they expect of us. But what if, let me run this by you, what if we didn't care so much about what they wanted and expected? Why? Because they're not very glorious. I dare you to tell that to someone who's trying to control you. You, my friend, are not very glorious. Try it. LMK, how that goes, okay? But God is so weighty. His value is so infinite. His opinion is so profoundly life-changing that if I really believe that God alone is glorious, I care little. And think of this. Put Jesus side to side with any person in your life who you're concerned about what they think about you. Put them side to side. And I want you to check out and compare if you would, even if it's in a carnal way, the glory. Compare their glory to each other. The glory of Jesus with the glory of this person. And I want you to see, I hope you see, that you don't have to fear that person. Instead, our heart is captivated by what God thinks. His approval. His acceptance. The Bible's term for this is the fear of man. And obviously, we see that that there isn't a single person that deserves that kind of fear. Only God gets that fear. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid of others. I don't have to worry about what they think. I don't have to let them control me and what they think of me. So what happens? My heart can change. I can let go of those um, behaviors that are symptomatic of being controlled or being afraid of what other people think of me. The answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. I worship Him. I respect Him. I adore God. I trust and submit only to God. And imagine um, the most glorious, beautiful, holy, and awesome, majestic God who has expressed Himself in His Son and then I consider other people and I say, I'm not, I'm not scared of what they think. I really don't care what you think of me. Also, thirdly, God is good. So, what does that mean? My heart changes because I know that God is good. I believe that God is good. Therefore, I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. I won't have to look for being gratified outside of God because God is infinitely good. He is supremely good. And what He gives me, what He wants for me, what He offers me, which is Himself, is supremely good. And if I am satisfied and gratified in who God is and what He's giving to me, which is Himself, guess what else I need? Guess where else I need to turn for comfort and rest and joy and happiness? Nowhere. I don't have to turn to anywhere else. I don't have to turn to anything else because I am super, deeply, profoundly um, fulfilled, gratified, and satisfied in the goodness of God. He meets the needs of my soul, so I don't have to chase a person. I don't have to chase a substance. I don't have to chase, you name it, power, control, approval, and comfort. Why don't I chase it? Because God is my deepest joy, my greatest satisfaction, and my highest gratification in my life. And yet, What do we do? We often, we're chasing created things. We're chasing the gift and not the giver of that gift. We're looking instead to the good giver. So, um, oftentimes it can be said that we have trouble with this because we want 
the good gift, or we want God's provision, but not necessarily God. And that's where it starts to get wobbly. And it's easy to think that more power, more relationships, more status, more success is the good life. But really, what we see here, a life filled with willing obedience to the Father through the Spirit is, in fact, the good life. And the question is, are we willing? Are we willing to trust that God gives us exactly what we need? That by giving us Himself, we don't have to look elsewhere. Lastly, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to perform flawlessly. We don't have to impress God. We don't have to pretend like we're not as bad as we really are, and we don't have to perform like we're better than we really are. Why is that? Because God is a gracious God. Most of us spend so much time, energy, and money trying to prove ourselves to other people or trying to prove ourselves maybe even to ourselves, trying to prove that we belong, trying to prove that we deserve health and wealth. we trying to prove to people that we have made it, that we're succeeding and achieving. And this leads us to either a sense of entitlement uh, where we have succeeded and we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, I worked for this, or despair because it's always out of reach. We always need the next thing. We arrived, but that's not enough. Now we're on to the next bigger, better, and more. And so we see that because of our sin, the only thing that we deserve from God is death, but instead He gives us Himself. He gives us life. And through His life and death and burial and resurrection, we find that He offers us full life, abundant life, and the only thing that we do in order to receive that is accept it and believe it. Why? Because God is so profoundly gracious that His character and nature is gracious, and we accept that gracious gift that God has given us. And when we do, we are fully accepted and loved by God. We have the Creator Himself that He's given us. Nothing we have done to earn it. There's no failure that we can um, find ourselves blundering our way out of it and losing it. There's nothing left to prove. The work needed to have God Himself, God has done Himself. We believe it and receive it. In fact, Jesus says to His disciples, here's the work I have for you. It's really one, here's the work that I need from you, and it's the work to believe. Believe it. Believe that these four truths about God are heart-changing. He is great and good, and He is glorious. And we see um, His graciousness here. Let's pray together. Father, thank You today for the transformation of our homes. We are um, putting our hope and trust in you today as we envision a brand new target, not a home that's surviving or even a home that's successful, but instead a home that is transformed. It's changing. It's growing. It's deepening. And God, when we are joined by faith to Jesus, we're so grateful that you begin to transform everything from the inside out. And when we believe the gospel, all aspects are transformed, our heart, our home, even our neighborhoods. And we pray today, God, that as you transform us, it actually begins to affect the relationships in our home with our kids and our parents, with our siblings. We pray for a new heart focus, and it wouldn't be on the behavior that bothers us, 
but instead we would do the work of transferring our attention. We would refocus it, concentrate on what's happening under the heart. And we know that in my family, in my home, we can grow and we can let our hearts adore you and all of your goodness and greatness and gloriousness and your uh, graciousness. We pray that as we believe that, we would see fruit of that, change of that. We're grateful today. And God, I'm mindful that there are so many people here whose homes are thriving. You're at work. You're doing it. We pray that that would um, be so fruitful that it would help reflect well on who you are. It would shine brightly among their neighbors and coworkers, classmates and teammates. For others, God, who it isn't thriving, it is a challenge. There is uh, danger there. There is hardship. There is heartache. I pray that you begin the process as needed, anywhere you need, anyhow you want to do it, that you begin that process of forgiveness, repentance, restoration. We pray that you'd help them to um, be renewed by learning to know you. We trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, church family, and if you're tuned in on live stream, we're going to sing these truths that we believe and sing them from our hearts. Not because it's time to sing, but because we believe them.